Before we start today, we have to say goodbye to someone close to the show. You know, when we listen back to your tape, we can hear there's really, really intense stuff and then really just mundane, like day-to-day being on hold or whatever stuff. What kind of story were you hoping to tell out of all of this? Um, trying to like broaden people's ideas of the world. People are always like, oh, your life is like right out of a movie or it's too crazy to be real or whatever. It's like all these things are happening in the world. You are just oblivious. (laughs) But yeah, really capturing day-to-day shit. Unfiltered, man, unfiltered. You're hearing Rainbow, a member of a youth advisory council led by crackdown partner Dania Fast. This is a place where young drug users get together to brainstorm solutions to the overdose crisis. Rainbow loved that group, and she became a real leader there. She co-authored papers, attended academic conferences, and made art, all in the name of improving young people's lives in Vancouver. In January of 2022, Rainbow was featured on an episode of Crackdown called After the Flood. Is there a story that goes with your name? Yeah, so my high school best friend's dad, like, always liked to make jokes about, like, my colorful hair and shit. Um, was like, oh, always like, what are you, a fucking rainbow? And I was like, yeah, you got a problem with that? Like, so that just kind of, like, grew on me. <laughs> and you, t- you changed it on your ID? Yeah, it's my legal name. It was just kind of like, fuck you, like... <laughs> I am a fucking rainbow. Deal with it. Like, and I was always wearing, like, bright colors of everything and fucking crazy patterns, neon everything, a clusterfuck of all the beautiful things at once, which probably looked really terrible, but I don't give a shit. I pulled it off. Rainbow died last month. She was only 27 years old. At Rainbow's memorial, her friends and colleagues told us how seriously she took her appearance on Crackdown. It was all she talked about for weeks. She'd ask them, what should I say on the show? What stories should I tell? How can I make the most of this opportunity? My goal is to be able to do basic things. Like, I want to be able to fucking have a safe house and be able to take care of myself, like fucking brush my teeth and brush my hair, you know, and then like have relationships with people that are nice and lovely and fulfilling and like, and I just be able to sit on my couch and feel like there is no immediate crisis. Just like simple ass shit that, you know, you know, most people will have. Makes sense. Rainbow was uniquely sharp and driven. She was dealing with a lot of shit, but she still made time to ask our team how we were doing, to check in and make sure that we were okay. She was the type of kid who needed some help, but not much help. A dignified place to live, a safer supply of drugs. And if we lived in a better world, Rainbow would still be alive today. What do you want things to be like for you when you're the age I am? I didn't think I would live to the age of 15 and then I didn't think I would live to the age of 18 and then I decided to live somewhere along the line and didn't think I would make it to 30 and I still might not for a lot of reasons but but it's not for lack of trying so 
I don't know what the future holds and I don't know where I'll get, but I know that I will do everything in my power to try and make my life a little better. I did whatever it took to get this far. Well, um, fucking A. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. You don't sound like mad at your parents for this. Like you, you sound like you have kind of a fond memories, at least yeah. a little bit of of your dad. Is am yeah. I hearing that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry, my cat's in the litter box. Can you not, dog? <laughs> you call your cat dog. Oh, <laughs> <Hello>, everyone, dog. <laughs> I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 43. Kids on the Block, Part 2. Jade. It seems that in British Columbia, they believe that it is an addict right, uh, God-given, charter-given right to use drugs at literally anywhere that they want to. Uh, and that government's job is just to make sure that they can do that safely. Now we're seeing uh, we the so-called safe supply of hydromorphone uh, has led people to take those drugs, sell them to kids, and then use the profits to buy illicit fentanyl. Uh, the they tend to sell these drugs to opioid-naive users for whom the drug produces a high. Um, and if you're selling to opioid-naive users, that means you disproportionately sell to younger people. There's a right-wing backlash against harm reduction ripping across Canada. If you've listened to this show in the past few months, you know it. Conservative politicians and media pundits are attacking life-saving responses to the overdose crisis, all in the name of protecting children and families. Pierre Polyev, Marshall Smith, and Adam Zivo constantly conjure up stories of young, helpless children getting wired on government dope. They want us to fear a small trickle of Dilaudid pills, a 4,000 patient prescription opioid program introduced to stem the unprecedented rate of drug deaths in BC. What Polyev, Smith and Zevo frequently leave out is that the coroner says these pills have not caused a single fatal overdose. And they're often the only thing keeping people away from the lethal toxic drug supply. But there's one thing these conservatives are right about. Canadian kids are less safe than ever before. Not because they might experiment with dillies, but because toxic illicit drugs might fuck up their lives. Or, as we're going to explore in this episode, because toxic illicit drugs might fuck up their parents' lives. 
could you introduce yourself? Um, I'm Jade. How old are you? I'm 21. And where do you live? I live in uh, Saskatchewan. Obviously, this is just audio. So could you give people a sense of like what you what's your vibe, what you dress like or look like or present like? Yeah, I got a bunch of facial piercings. Um, I dress pretty alternatively. Um, lots of blacks, grays and greens, particularly. So is that like a little bit goth? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I first heard about Jade through this really cool project they made. It's a collection of art and stories about crystal meth told from many different perspectives, including the kids of people who use meth. I knew right away that I had to give them a call. Jade grew up on the prairies, where they were raised by their mom and their stepdad, who Jade just called dad. Jade says they could always tell their parents loved them, but looking back, it's obvious they weren't ready to be parents. Both had challenging childhoods themselves, and both were young. Jade's mom was 21 when they were born, and their dad was 19 when he came into their life. He was um, blonde, short hair, blue eyes, um, usually had a cleanly shaven beard. He would like manicure it pretty well. Um, he had a bit of a crooked nose because uh, he played hockey. He also had um, a gap in his teeth because of a puck hitting him in the face when he was a kid. What did your dad do for a living? Um, a variety of things. He was a contractor. He was a mechanic. He stole catalytic converters. You know. Jade says, all in all, they had a pretty weird childhood. Everyday life could suddenly be punctured by the need to flee the cops or child protection workers. And so the family moved around incessantly, sometimes only staying in one spot for a few weeks. And whenever Jade's parents moved, it seemed like their place became the party spot. Jade remembers a kind of revolving door of people drinking, using drugs, and crashing overnight. The one day I wake up and I walk into my living room and there's like this this guy that I've never seen before on my couch. And I'm like, what the fuck? Okay. Right. And I just like start watching TV and he wakes up and he goes, ugh, I'm so thirsty. I will give you $5 for the biggest, tallest glass of cold water that you can give me. And I was like, okay. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure I was, uh, I would have been nine or 10. So five bucks was like, hell yeah. Um, so I got him a big tall glass of water and he left a few hours later, he felt better. <laughs> <laughs> One time we lived with a homeless man named Larry who had a lot of birds. He was genuinely so cool. Like, what do you mean? Like how many birds? Like this guy had like one, two, three, four, five birds. Three of them being parrots. Like, and he lived in his truck and in my basement for a month and a half. Like what? So did him and the parrots move in yeah. to the house? Yeah, and the parrots loved me right. and I loved the parrots. And like, he also had a little <laughs> dog. Do you remember any of the names of the birds? Um, the, the big white one, I think it was a cockatoo. Um, his name was Petey and he was my favorite and he was um, really nice to me, but he bit everybody else. And I thought that was great. <laughs> 
<laughs> did did Petey say anything? No, Petey just screamed really loudly. Um, the reason that Larry had to move out was because I got really, really sick and almost died. Um, and my dad was like, it's obviously the birds. Um, it was it was their neglect, actually. Um, oh. Jade says they later learned that they had something called acute disseminated encephalomitis, a serious neurological condition that can result from a bacterial infection. Jade says they got it from untreated strep throat because their parents didn't get them to a doctor fast enough. So they kicked Larry out because um, I was like panicking because Petey was screaming all the time because there was like a sick child in the basement with him because that's where my room was. And um, right. Yeah, so Larry moved out and I never saw him again. But Jade says there were good times with their parents too. They remember long walks along the river with their mom and learning how to ride a bike with their dad. When Jade was little, their dad would sometimes wake them up in the middle of the night to give them a frosty from Wendy's. Jade's dad built a bed frame for him and their mom Jade remembers lying under it, watching their dad play Call of Duty or Naruto for hours. They'd fall asleep, feeling safe and warm among the dirty laundry on the floor. I have pajama pants of his that I love wearing, but they're itchy because there are like cigarette holes everywhere. <laughs> Tell um, me, what color are they, the pajama pants? Um, my favorite pair is blue plaid. Um, oh yeah, and it's got like long drawstrings, and they're like fleece, and they're way too big for me. Um, <laughs> but I love them. I love wearing his clothes. On May of 2011, Jade turned nine. It was a birthday they'll never forget. As a special gift, Jade's dad found a way to get them their very own quad. Jade was eager to try it out, so their dad and his friend drove them down to an open field to go for a ride. Jade was having a blast ripping around on the four-wheeler, but the best part was just spending time with their dad. I was having so much fun, um, so I asked if I could put it back in the truck, and my dad said yes. When I got up the ramp and like to the bump at the tailgate, it startled me and I like jumped and my hand hit the acceleration and I accelerated into his leg. Wow. It was the first time Jade ever saw their dad cry. He made a pained moan as the quad rolled over his right foot and smashed into his kneecap. But in almost the same instant, Jade fell off the quad and hurt their ankle. Their dad tried to overcome his agony and stay calm. He asked if Jade was okay and he yelled at his friend to call an ambulance. Jade was in shock but remembers worrying their dad was going to be mad. He kept saying, I'm okay, I'm okay, but Jade didn't feel reassured. At the hospital, Jade and their dad discovered that nearly every bone in his leg had been shattered. He'd need to have a titanium rod put in. After only a few days, he was released from the hospital with crutches and a script for pain meds. Do you feel, uh, do you feel mm -hmm. like guilty for that accident? Um, sometimes I do. 
But he like made sure to emphasize that it wasn't my fault. Of course not. Yeah, of course not. And uh, so did the rest of my family. So there are just times where I like realize that that's the starting point of his addiction, like going downhill. Um, and that kind of sucks. But I like it doesn't mean I blame myself. I just wish things had ended differently. Within six months of the accident, Jade could tell their dad was wired to opioids. Jade was just a kid at the time and didn't understand all the details. Their mom later told them that the doctors cut him off from pain meds shortly after the accident. And so, with no kind of safe supply available, no way to source legal and regulated drugs, their dad turned to the illicit, toxic market. Jade says he started locking himself in the bathroom and the kids would sometimes have accidents because he wouldn't come out. When this happened, Jade remembers a certain troubled look that would come over their mom's face. Then he started breaking and entering. Random stuff would just appear around their home, like catalytic converters, a valuable car part he could resell. Jade says he'd also mix opioids with meth, a combination that turned him into a completely different guy. My dad would get into these like delusions of like, I'm a superhero. I don't need medical help. He would like break his hands on like studs and walls because of punching them. And like he has broken so many bones. He was in two drunk motorcycle accidents in which he broke his spine, but he would just do drugs because the pain would go away and then it's fine, right? We didn't pay the bills all the time, um, as one doesn't. And um, we didn't have hot water for a week, but there were three kids living in the house. So someone called social services, probably like my school or something. And they came and did an inspection. The, the lovely ladies asked me like, what I do, why my room was so messy, like um, why certain things weren't done around the house. Um, and it's because I was <laughs> I was in charge of all of that and I was like nine. Wow. Um, had social services walked further into my room and seen the bag of used syringes next to my bed, I would have gotten taken away that day. Um, yeah. And why were the why were the rigs in your bedroom? Because um, I found them in the bathroom. And I was like, oh, I'm going to play doctor. So I did poke myself with them. Fortunately, I didn't um, contract anything. Right. Like, that's... <laughs> Saskatchewan's drug overdose numbers continue to rise. Overdose deaths have doubled in Saskatchewan. The province continues to grapple with the issue of drug toxicity. One drug, the most common, among accidental deaths. At this point, everything we're testing is coming back positive for fentanyl. COVID and fentanyl both hit Saskatchewan hard in 2020. The province had little harm reduction infrastructure and no real plan to deal with toxic drugs. This was in spite of the fact that other Canadian jurisdictions had been dealing with an overdose crisis for years. You know, and I think naloxone, we're, we're increasing the availability of it, but it's still fairly limited to where and when you can get it. Jason Mercury is the executive director at Prairie Harm Reduction, Saskatoon's supervised consumption site. 
The provincial government has denied PHR funding twice in its yearly budgets. The overdose fatality rate doubled that year. At that time, Jade was 18 and their dad was 35. Jade worried he didn't fully understand the danger he was in. This is the new norm, and so we got to start acting like it. Move left experts and frontline workers baffled. Saskatoon's only harm reduction facility says it's not a surprise. Jade's dad tried to kick several times. He wanted help, but rehab was his only option, and he'd already tried it before. He just couldn't get on top of his habit. Eventually, he started borrowing money from Jade and not always paying it back. Everything felt really desperate. Do you mind telling me what happened to him? Yeah. So, in uh, July of 2020, my dad had dropped off my brother and sister um, at my house and... When he was supposed to come pick them up on Monday, he did not. I texted him on Monday at 2.24 p.m. And um, he didn't answer, didn't read it. Um, what did your text say? Uh, it said, hey, I'm sorry for snapping at you the way I did. <laughs> Which is devastating when I think about it. Yeah. Um, Yeah, but uh, they, um, it was in the middle of a heat wave, and um, by Wednesday, my little brother was like, ah, I should go over there to feed the cat, um, and my mom was like, mm, maybe you shouldn't, um, and she disappears for, I don't know, an hour, half an hour, I don't remember, um, and she just texts me, kiddo, dot, 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 and I go, is he dead? And she just, like, sends a crying emoji. Um, oh. And I, like, <laughs> I was in a call with my friend at the time. And I, like, lost my shit. He always said he didn't think he would live past 35. And he was right. He died at 35. Um, oh, jeez. On my brother's birthday, he had said, uh, you know what? Maybe I'll live to 65. And um, my mom said that he had uh, written himself letters and stuff saying that he wanted to do better and that he was going to do better. And she said, um, when I'm ready, I can read them. I just uh, don't know when that'll be. Yeah. You got to go easy on yourself, you know? Yeah. I mean, if they get... If they get podcasts on the other side and he gets a chance to hear this and know... I mean, I'm I'm sure he would be incredibly proud, you know? Yeah. I suppose that's true. Jade remembers in the hours after they got the news about their dad. They started painting to numb the pain. They worked in swoops, thick, blending, melting streaks of red, blue, yellow, white, and black across the page. 
There's a face in the abstract image. An animal's eyes narrow in anguish. A huge fanged mouth wailing. It's the cover art for this episode. The overdose crisis has put thousands of kids into the same position as Jade. We don't talk about that nearly enough. It's not just people's kids who've died, it's people's parents too. For a lot of young people, losing a parent to toxic drugs would push them to use drugs themselves. But so far, Jade's resisted using anything harder than weed or shrooms. I mean, it seems incredible to me that all this shit's happened that you've been telling us about. And I mean, I spent most of my life trying to numb out the trauma and hide from it, you know, like bury myself against it. And, and I, I understand that you don't, you don't use drugs. You managed to not go for that. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Well, tell me about yeah, that. It's, it's really, really, really hard. Um, I would use, but I know that if I start, I won't stop. Like yesterday I watched Love in the Time of Fentanyl, which was amazing. But like the whole time, all I could think was like, man, I want to go use, but like, I don't. So it's like, it's weird. What do you think is driving that urge? Escapism, I think. Yeah. Um, just wanting to get away. Turn off my brain for a little bit. There's another path that Jade could have gone down. Resentment and hatred. It would have been really easy for Jade to blame their parents for using drugs. For them to hate drug users. To become callous and spiteful. If they went that way, I'd have understood it. But Jade went the other way. okay <laughs> i'm just recording like ambient noise and like they just want to hear like what we do here waiting for the youth, waiting for the youth. living loving working true who's that true. um it's crackdown podcast they're from jade got a job at a local youth drop-in space the same year their dad died the organization offers arts and mentorship programming to indigenous youth most of the kids who come by are in their late teens or early 20s, around Jade's age. Because the center gets very little funding from the government, they can only afford to open four days a week and for only four hours a day. In that time, they run workshops on arts, culture, and personal wellness. But Jade hopes someday the studio can become an overnight shelter or at least stay open all day. So right now, if we're in an industrial building... Um, we've got a snack counter at the back and then we've got like a counter where we've got medicines, um, mostly Buffalo sage right now. Uh And, um, like the youth will come in the last to smudge and they'll use that. Uh And then we've got a couple of little tables with like tables inside of them. Um, so that the youth have like surfaces to draw on when they want to draw because we get them to draw for an extra cigarette. So tell me about that. You you uh, you give people cigarettes, and then if they want another one, uh, you got to draw something. Yeah, we do a free cigarette a day um, for the older youth, and um, we've also done story smokes where they just tell us a story about their life. Oh, that's cool. 
can you give me an example of like what a really good day would be like around there? Hmm. So a really good day would be there's probably 30 of them coming through, maybe 40, but it feels like there's 20 because they're all just laughing and talking and it's all light vibes. They're like talking about who caught what charges in like the most jolly way and like um, like what they're going to do, like where they're going to sip usually. Um, they're like... The good days, there's no beef. About six months into the job, Jade asked their boss if the center could start taking on the toxic drug crisis more directly. Jade started to show the kids how to reverse overdoses by administering naloxone. They offered harm reduction gear to minimize the spread of bloodborne infections like HIV and Hep C. And they gave out Gatorade to drinkers so they wouldn't get dehydrated. And like as we're giving out the drinks, we're like, what are the rules? We're going to stay together. No one's going to be alone. We're going to stay safe and we're going to have fun. And um, do you say it like, like that? Say it along with you, us. Yeah, yeah. You get a... a a group chorus going. Eh? It's so cute. And like, yeah, these guys are like 15, 16, and it's amazing to see. My youth have seen me like giving other youth pipes before, and they've been like, why are you doing that if they don't have a place to use? And I was like, don't worry, they're not going to use in the building. And they're like, no, they don't have a place to use. And I was like, are you suggesting a youth safe, youth only safe consumption site? And they were like, yes. I was like, that is so much more woke than you have ever thought that it was. That came from one of the youth that like has some stigma against drugs, you know? Right. The latest provincial coroner's service data shows last year may have been the deadliest for drug overdoses in Saskatchewan since data collection began in 2010. The deaths of hundreds of young adults from accidental drug poisoning is driving down Saskatchewan's average life expectancy. Last week, the government announced a shift to what it calls a recovery-oriented system of care. The move left experts and frontline workers baffled. The Saskatchewan government's refusal to give drug users any alternative to the deadly illicit supply has led to unprecedented death. The latest figures are still coming in. But it seems pretty certain that the province set a new grim record for fatal overdoses in 2023. And young drug users across the province have been hit especially hard. Last year, about 5% of Saskatchewan's overdose deaths were among kids 19 and under. I don't know, it's always shitty coming into work and hearing, ah, oh, so-and-so overdosed or um, so-and-so started using again. Um, when they've been so, so proud of themselves for staying sober for so long, but something's happened. There's this one youth who's 18, and they have overdosed eight times in the past year, with six of them being in the past six months. Right. Um, and they use fentanyl primarily. Like, that's their drug of choice. So, and what's that? What's that like for you? What's your relationship like with that eighteen-year-old? 
I'm really close with them, actually. I was friends with their older sister when I was a kid. Um, and they always, like, beeline straight for me at the, at the studio. So I'm their point person. And I'm, I'm still learning how to, how to care from the edge of the beach, you know, rather than neck deep in the water. Right. So I'll get there with time, but for now, I'll learn all the frontline stuff. Yeah, you got to take care of yourself, too. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I get what Jade means. They're so close to this stuff. Their wounds are so deep and so fresh. How could they possibly do this kind of work without constantly fearing the worst? I've seen this kind of thing a lot. The harm reduction world is full of people like Jade. People who've channeled their own grief and anger, their own loss and dispossession into helping others. And I'm struck by how utterly unfair it is that the communities most harmed by the overdose crisis are the ones who have had to shoulder the burden of fixing it. But if we don't do this work, who will? Certainly not our elected officials. Just a couple weeks ago, Saskatchewan's right-wing government, led by Premier Scott Moe, announced they'd be cutting funding for new pipes and implementing needle exchange instead of distribution. That means that drug users won't be able to get a new needle unless they can hand in an old one first. Research shows that that will lead to higher rates of bloodborne disease transmission. The decision was made in spite of the fact that Saskatchewan has little in the way of harm reduction programming to begin with and already has five times the national rate for new HIV infections. If we did not have harm reduction measures, if I were not able to give that 18-year-old naloxone kits, if I couldn't do that, she would be dead. A hundred percent. Right. Like, if I weren't giving these youth pipes that are clean and, like, not broken, they would be using fucked up shit, like, broken light bulbs and cutting their lips and, like, who knows what viruses... Yeah get yeah. spread when like hep C and HIV like it's well we I mean prescribed safe supply it seems to me would be a pretty important step for the the not having so much overdoses you know and not and so much death mm -hmm. and it would be um it would just take like these youth are so apprehensive of systems that like a prescription would work, but I don't think a pharmacy setting would work. It would have to be more similar to how dispensaries are, where the vibe is less clinical. What if you could uh, run a dispensary? Yeah. So my dream would be there's like a big room for them to like sit and convene and draw. And there's like all sorts of seating and like really chill lighting um, so that like their brains don't hurt because big lights hurt my brain. And like... You just like, you use, you stay as long as you need, you pop back out into the art room and you're there with your homies. I really like your dream, you know? I wanna sign up to that newsletter. I, I really, yeah, I really like that dream. Oh, you're the musician. Yeah, yeah kind of. <laughs> hey, you wanna come play a thing? We're doing a drag show. Oh, 
Yeah, I will. What do you do? Do you do anything? Do you do drag? I don't do drag. Um, I just do like graphic design. Why did you get on the pride board? We need somebody on the pride board. I have. I'm so, so burnt out, Fran. <laughs> I know. I hear you. Jade is only 21 but they're meticulous and driven beyond their years. At the end of our interview, Jade tells me they have a kind of five-year plan, a list of achievements that they hope to accomplish by their mid-twenties. And it turns out that appearing as a guest on Crackdown was one of the things on that list. So we're, uh, we're like a box or a rung, or we're like part of what you had hoped to happen for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, meeting you especially, Garth. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. I'm I'm honored. I'm actually to be honest, I'm just blown away uh like hearing your story and getting to know you a little bit. I kind of I I realized partway through, maybe about halfway through that I forgot that we were doing an interview or I kind of just sort of phased out a little bit and I was just like interested to get to know you. And um you're like an amazing person, you know. Holy shit. Oh, like I you. wish I was as smart as you and had the dreams and worldview and like forgiveness and like all the shit that you did. I wish I had had that, um, you know, when I was 21 or even <laughs> like today, you know, I was just, I was, I was really, I was really moved by this. Thank you. You guys are amazing. Um, is there anything that you wanted to say that I didn't ask? Is there any piece of information about when we were talking about your family that, that I, we never got to? Just that I don't do it for any reason other than like honoring myself and the community, but especially myself. This job, despite the fact that it's for other people, is for me, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. I am a researcher who researches youth substance use and family substance use, and I do this work because I grew up in a context where uh, I experienced uh, a parent using substances. And in many ways, although the stories are different and uh, my parent didn't uh, die as a result of their use, my childhood had many of the similar um, sort of chaotic and unpredictable, but also um, you know, quirky and interesting moments as Jade's. And so lots of the story that they shared um, really hit me. This is Rebecca Hainsaw. Rebecca is a professor of community health science at the University of Calgary. She's been living in Calgary with her family for the last seven years. Along with Professor Dania Fast, Rebecca has spent years talking to young people and their families impacted by the toxic drug crisis about what they need to stay healthy and safe. Well, uh, thanks for thanks for joining us. Um, you know, we just listened to Jade's story, and what were some of the things that struck you from that most? Yeah, it brought up a lot of emotion for me. I think um, their pain of losing their dad and what they've been through with their family is really visceral. And um, I think the thing I found most moving was the expression of care in the conversation between you and Jade. You know, it brought me to tears when you said maybe their dad is listening to 
the podcast in the afterlife, if there's podcast that was really, really uh, moving. And I, I just think that really embodies the principles of what harm reduction is, is, you know, non-judgment, compassion, and unconditional support for folks. And that was just a beautiful example in that exchange, I thought. When you and me were chatting uh, last week about this, I think you said something like you were struggling to keep your sort of academic objectivity uh, <laughs> all in place. Were there moments uh, when you were listening to Jade's story where you kind of flashed back on moments of your own childhood? <laughs> oh, totally. One story that really stood out to me that's so relatable to my own experience um, was their story about the parrot. One time we lived with a homeless man named Larry who had a lot of birds. He was genuinely so cool. So did him and the parrots move in yeah. to the house? Yeah, and the parrots loved me right. and I loved the parrots. And like, he also had a little <laughs> dog. Um, the reason that Larry had to move out was because I got really, really sick and almost died. Um, and my dad was like, it's obviously the birds. Um, it was it was their neglect actually. Um, oh. I had a similar story when I was about kindergarten age. We were actually robbed at gunpoint. We had a home invasion and um, my dad was passed out. And, uh, you know, the cops came in and was like, what's, what's he on? Why isn't he awake during this uh, when they came in after? And uh, the next day he got up and, and yelled at me for trashing the house because he had, he had uh, you know, been out for the whole thing. And so. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, like I, your dad I, was passed out during the home invasion. Yeah. So yeah. they, they came in, they trashed your place, the police came. And then the next day your dad finally wakes up and says, hey, why'd you mess up the place? Yeah, it's like, Rebecca, why are there eggs cracked on the floor? Why is this whole place trash? Like, what went on? And I'm like, it wasn't me. We got robbed. And uh, oh this is like a, a funny family story that we grew up sharing, much like the um, the parrot story. Um, but actually, when you reflect back on it, it's it's hilarious, but also sad, right? It's awful. At the same time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's a bright moment to the end of that story. Everyone laughs because I... Uh, I was most concerned that the robbers were going to steal all my books. And then I went on to become an academic. So go figure. <laughs> Did they steal your books? No, they did not. <laughs> <laughs> well, putting back on your academic hat for a minute. Um, yeah. How does the story, Jade's story, compare to other examples of parents who use drugs that, that you're familiar with? Yeah, I, I think what really stands out for me about their story is that the way that it's told is so... Um, nuanced, and they highlight sort of the, the good and the bad. And so you can't easily just say, well, you know, their childhood was was awful and, and their dad is to blame, right? Like there's also a lot of love and care um, in their family. And I think that both researchers and, you know, broader culture alike really miss that when we're telling stories of what it's like to grow up with a parent who uses substances. You know, when, when Jade was telling their story, you know, during the first part of it, I kind of felt this um, almost like protective urge over the 12-year-old that that they were back then. Uh, you know, and I kind of felt like, ah, uh, this dad should should do his job and like take care of this kid. You know, this kid needs a parent to be watching out for them. And uh, and then I, I started to realize as we went on that that's not, you know, that kind of reaction isn't really so useful and the whole story isn't so simple as painting good guys and bad guys. What kind of things do you think could have helped 
the dad? You know, what supports could have come uh, that would have helped Jade's family? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And that is the reaction that a lot of us have because parental drug use is just so stigmatized. There's like, you know, in the eyes of some folks, there's nothing worse. And, and Jade's dad would have been just a horrible, you know, parent or person. But I think it's so much more layered than that, right? Like, it doesn't seem like they had much access to anything to support their well-being, right? Uh, no types of non-judgmental, non-stigmatizing, like supportive services for the dad. But more than this, if there's substance use in your family, the major thing that you're terrified of is child welf welfare intervention. So even the services that exist and are out there you're just so terrified that um, someone's going to notify Child Protective Services and you're going to get taken out of your home, right? So it's a, it's a combination of like not having the services there for the parents and then, um, you know, just worried that there's going to be consequences if you, if you do reach out for help in any way. I mean, we, we know that child welfare system is a, is a vector of harm and that youth who are exposed to it are more likely to engage in risky behaviors and substance use like later in life versus their peer group. You know, and in, in fact, here in BC, between 2017 and 2022, 73% of the kids who are 19 years and under who died of toxic drugs were in receipt of some kind of um, services uh, through the Ministry of Children and Family Development. So that like contact with that ministry is a massive predictor of overdose fatality among youth. And it just seems like when we think about the kinds of services that could help, well, the, the big one out there is, is a service that actually harms right now. Yeah, it, it's so true. And I think it's one of the like enduring, persistent sort of misconceptions about how these carceral systems work and, and what types of outcomes they produce for folks. So just like the myth, like, oh, we just got to get people to jail and then they'll get off drugs and, you know, they'll get cleaned up and they'll come out and they'll be reformed. We have the same myths about child welfare, like those parents aren't fit because they're substance use. So we got to get those kids out. And if we get them into a new home, they're going to be safe and they're going to be successful. Um, that's just not what the evidence shows. There's enduring harm from being separated from your family, from losing that connection. It's exacerbated when you're Indigenous and you're placed in a mm -hmm. context with other folks. Uh, in the U.S., Dorothy Roberts' research, I know she calls it the family policing system, uh, not the child welfare system. And uh, Yeah, she sh she, her research shows that like, 50% of black families have had a child welfare contact, like in the general population, not even substance use. So, um, you know, it's rampant and it is a mark of harm. In, in Saskatchewan, where, where Jade lives, there's a conservative government, you know, the Saskatchewan party. They're, they're against harm reduction. They're against safe supply. Uh, they're really um, on the right wing end of the, the spectrum of responses to the a toxic drug crisis in Canada. Um, do you, uh, like, do you have any reflections on that and how this kind of affects this story? Yeah, I think Saskatchewan is really following the Alberta playbook. And I don't know if you've been on social media today, but I just saw something before we started this chat that um, they're going to stop distribution of meth and crack pipes. 
and they're going to um, uh, needle needle exchange, not needle distribution. Like they just announced this in, in Saskatchewan mm-hmm. today. Um, I did see that, you know, and it, yeah. it's, it is worrying. It's, it's part of a um, creep across the country, certainly rooted in the prairies in Alberta. But um, we're seeing governments everywhere starting to turn against harm reduction and to tear apart these small gains that we've made over the last couple of decades. Yeah, to me, it's just so disheartening when on the one hand, we have this, I think, support for mental health and advocacy growing, even though it's been corporatized in the let's talk type of things. And, you know, we have this idea like, oh, you know, break the silence, break the stigma, open up, ask for support. And and when it comes to substances, uh, it's it's the opposite. And it is more than that, as we've talked a little bit about um, in this series, a direct organized political attack on harm reduction, right? And and youth and children um, are really weaponized in this. I mean, you can really hear in Jade's story the way they describe what would have made a difference for their dad was uh, safe supply and supports, not criminalization. And what would what what they dream of for their uh, for their cohort, you know, for other youth. So my dream would be there's like a big room for them to like sit and convene and draw and there's like all sorts of seating and like really chill lighting um so that like their brains don't hurt because big lights hurt my brain and like you just like you use you stay as long as you need you pop back out into the art room and you're there with your homies i mean what do you think of that as an approach uh jade's dream I think what was so moving was that um, they really, they really get what's missing. It's so obvious in Jade's story that uh, the things that their dad didn't have, they're attempting to provide to other folks through their work at the center. And some of the young people that they're helping and they're supporting are about the same age, uh, you know, in the late teens that uh, Jade's dad was. When he had them, right? So, it's it, that connection is there. Um, they they lived it. They get it, and and they're telling people, you know, you matter. Even if you don't stop using substances, uh, we're here for you. These are supports in your community, and we need you here. Uh, we need you to stick around. Um, you know, the pain of not having their dad there is 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 really strong, and it comes across. And maybe if they had had a chance to feel that support they'd still be here. Mm-hmm. Like, does Jade's story compare with other young caregivers that you've met in your research? A lot of us are drawn to working on topics that we've experienced. And I think in um, right now in, in this context, um, we all know like there's this unrelenting um, death and like um, attacks on harm reduction at the same time as we're losing folks. So it can just be a tremendous... Um, emotional uh, stressor. And that's what I worry about. That's what I've seen, not in my research, but also like in my networks. Yeah. I mean, um, I I just got one of the youth harm reduction calls to action here. It's number three. And it says, we demand investment in low barrier and youth-led harm reduction programs and spaces, including safe consumption sites. And I mean, in Saskatchewan, we're just seeing um, the government move in the opposite direction from that. 
Yeah, and I think that's what's at the heart of this project that um, Dania Fast and I are working on with others is, you know, the idea that these programs and even support and belief in the evidence supporting these programs is really under attack. And we need a national dialogue. And more than that, we need national standards that, um, you know, sort of enshrine these things. You know, the best prevention has very little to do with drugs. When you have all the supports there, like to be well-fed, to be engaged in school, to have fun, to create art, kids are less likely to use substances in harmful ways. So it's not about stopping young kids from knowing about substances or experimenting or even using. It's about attaching them to everything else uh, that might su support their well-being. We just have this very, very narrow focus on like, this is the risk factor that's going to ruin your future. Uh, and I think kids know that's bullshit, right? I mean, honestly, I... I really felt connected to Jade during this interview and I worry about them. You know, they said they felt like using and I understand this, you know, like the trauma of the way they grew up and losing their dad, the trauma that the drug war inflicted on their family uh, like threatens their community and their life right now. And I hope that Jade can stay on the safe side of things. I hope that they can stay using uh, – non-toxic substances, which is what they're trying to do right now. But I I do worry. I think about them periodically since we did that interview. And I really, I really hope that they're able to get where they're going because they have a plan for their life. And that plan doesn't include um, themselves dying from toxic drugs. And that plan includes bringing their community, other youth along with them to that better place. So I, I really hope for them that they they get to make their dream come true. Yeah, I mean, that that care and protection was so evident in the conversation, and that's what I think is, you know, quite moving. And I think those moments are, are things that provide people with, um, you know, support and strength and, like, um, and the chance to move forward because uh, you really feel seen and you really feel supported. And... Um, Maybe you're not old enough to be their parent, Garth, but it was almost like a, a big brother or, or a parenting moment that, that you two shared. And I think though, when you've experienced that, the loss of a parent or, um, you know, a chaotic upbringing, you're always looking for that. You're always looking to sort of have those figures in your life. I, I know that's what I've looked for. Um, and in some ways, I, I, I'm still looking for it through my research and, and the work that I'm doing in the community, right? Like, I, I've heard other people say it, but I, I couldn't fix my own fucked up family, so I'm trying to support others, right? Well, I hope you've gotten to do that in your research and advocacy, Rebecca. Yeah, yeah, it's a process. But I would just add that, um, you know, my concern is like, I don't want Jade to burn out. I want them to stay strong. And to me, it's not important whether that... Um, whether that means they're using other substances or they're using more substances, but I just want them um, not to burn out and to feel that they have support and feel that they have hope from their future and know they're loved. Yeah, me too. Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Our editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Jeff Loudon, D. 
Dean Wilson, Laura Shaver, Raya Jean, and rest in peace, Dave Murray, Greg Frez, and Sharice Kiwat. This episode was conceptualized, written, and produced by Sam Fenn, Alex DeBoer, Lisa Hale, Jade, Rebecca Hainsaw, Dania Fast, and me, Garth Mullins. Thanks to Candice Lipsky and Robbie Priest for their production assistance. Special thanks to Jade for recording Radio Diaries for this episode. Score by James Ash, Sam Fenn, with contributions from Michael Bowd. Today's episode was funded in part by the Canadian Institutes for Health Research, the Vancouver Foundation, and Michael Smith Health Research BC. If you like what we do, please support us at patreon.com slash crackdownpod. Thanks for listening, stay safe, and keep six. Love y'all crackdown.